Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Omavi Shakur. He is a practitioner in residence at the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thoughts Initiative for a Just Society. He also holds an appointment as an Associate Research Scholar at Columbia Law. Omavi has published a Boston University Law Review article titled, The Criminalization of Black Resistance. He examines how laws that criminalize resisting arrest harden white social dominance and deepen blacks' racial subordination. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates. So with uh, Alden. Uh, Alden Briscoe, and I'm just south of San Francisco in San Mateo. But I'd like to say that I think we ought to agree that John Woodford should be banished from this group. <laughs> and the reason is, uh, has anybody read his uh, what his report in the in this in the uh, 60th uh, reunion thing? No, I've he's, not read it. He's, well, that's that's always the first thing I read when I get that. He's thinking <laughs> about leisurating. And and what he doesn't know is that in Florida, there's a law against leisurating and he is and leisureators and leisure leisureators are put in jail. So I think we ought to. And they can't lose the bathrooms in Florida anywhere. Are we worried about guilt by association here? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And okay, Ronnie, Ron. Okay, class of 63, one time roommate of Mr. Woodford himself. Uh, never smoked cigars, uh, got into TV right out of right after graduation, been in that and video most of my life, still doing some um, iPhone videos and uh, writing some scripts. Okay, John. Oh, hi. Uh, here at Ann Arbor, Michigan. Was editing and writing for a, quite a while. Yeah, Richard Rothstein, also sixty-three. Um, uh, I probably best known for a book I wrote years ago called *The Color of Law*. I've got a new book coming out um, uh, this week uh, called *Just Action*, which is a sequel to that. And Ron, it, uh, I wish I could come to your uh, activist. But I'm going to be on a book tour. But the book is called Just Action, and uh, it's a, a formula for what the yeah. people can do to redress uh, the effects of racial segregation. So, yeah. Okay, Peter. Hi. Yes, I'm uh, Pete Delisavoy. I'm an editor and writer in New Hampshire, and uh, I'll just say that I enjoyed reading the Boston Law Review article to get started with today. Okay. Good. Marcy. Um, <clears throat> I run a nonprofit in New York City that was involved in what was then called the resistance to an environmentally damaging boondoggle called Westway um, that would have taken billions from mass transit and our side won. Okay. Nick. Nick Bancroft, uh, class of 63, lives outside of Boston. Uh, after 63, Harvard Business School, then India and the Peace Corps for two years. Um, 
as a minority in India for two years, <clears throat> back to Boston, uh, estates and investments, that sort of thing. Okay. Hamp. Uh, 63. Hi, Ken. Uh, I, I'm, I'm an ongoing psychologist and psychotherapist and uh, monitoring our, our political system and getting more hopeless and pissed every day. <laughs> okay. And uh, Kathy? I'm an economist retired from HUD where I tried to get um, housing assistance directed toward poor people and um, very, very concerned about the, the debt crisis now. And I just posted something on my Facebook page yesterday. Um, uh, David Leonhardt's um, uh, graphs based on uh, Piketty's income inequality showing that there was shared prosperity be from 1946 to 1980 and that how badly income inequality has worsened between 1980 and 2014. Okay. Uh, David Allen. Out here in Concord, Mass. Um, delighted to be following Kathy talking about posting on Piketty. Um, did a session for a group of HBS alumni back a year and some now where uh, Piketty and uh, uh, Bob Putnam figured very large on the subject. Uh, looking forward to week from tomorrow when with Ron and four others, we'll do a session on activism. Uh, sorry you're not going to be there, Richard. Uh, there, Ron got up. They hit that uh, QR code with your phone and you'll get to our website. Uh, we're looking forward to see as many of you as we can. And uh, Ron has uh, been talking about a lunch uh, Friday midday. So we get to meet some of ourselves in person. Everybody who's there, we hope. All right. Great. Spencer. Yes. Okay. On the subject of uh, Piketty, <laughs> um, I've got uh, two chapters of my 517-page uh manuscript on its way to becoming a book, uh, How Are We Going to Achieve a Sustainable Future? And uh, Piketty and uh, Saez and Reich uh, and uh, Thomas, uh, uh, the younger Galbraith, the University of Texas, all rank high throughout those chapters. Uh, uh, as you many of you know, uh, I was one of the founders of the Black Economic Development Movement in the United States. We invented uh, the uh, Negro Industrial and Economic Union in 1967, became the Black Economic Union, founded by Jim Brown, who recently, uh, unfortunately, passed away. But uh, we were founders of that, uh, had all the athletes involved, and uh, recognized uh, athletes as, uh, and entertainers as being a major force in, uh, uh, for Black economic development. Uh, and uh, I have been involved in that ever since. So uh, I'm uh, coming out with this uh, this book, which has been in preparation since 26, 2016, when I finished the first draft, and uh, I'm very excited about it. So that's it. Return to my life as a writer for the next couple of years. 
Hi, I'm David Lelyveld. I'm in Washington Heights in New York, and uh, I'm a historian of India, and uh, I am uh, the father of a good friend of Omavi, who my daughter sent uh, me the article, and uh, that's why that's uh, started it up. And uh, uh, I've uh, been hearing about Omavi's work uh, for a long time now, and very excited to hear the presentation. Hi, Ken Manister, uh, also class of 63. I live in Los Altos, California, retired environmental law professor, uh, taught at Santa Clara University um, and some other institutions for many years. Uh, I will not be at the reunion next week, but I do want to wish all of you who are going to be there a, uh, a great time. And Amavi, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Uh Thank you. Thank you for, for having me. I feel uh, blessed to be, be among you. Um, and and uh, thank you, David, and uh, for just raising such a phenomenal, brilliant friend who um, brought me here. And, and thank you, Richard, for the great work you've done, um, some of which is cited in my, my article. Uh, my name is, again, Omavi Shakur. Uh, I am a research scholar at Columbia Law School. I also taught critical race theory at NYU this past semester. Uh, I, I've transitioned into the academy after uh, about a decade practicing law as a public defender in New Orleans and most recently as an assistant counsel at the Legal Defense Fund. Uh, and my, my scholarship in the academy uh, focuses on the means by which the state criminalizes resistance to state violence. Uh, my, my first article is a sort of racial contextualization uh, of uh, the criminalization of resistance to the capture of arrest. I'll just say in, in short, it examines the, the anti-Black dimensions of resisting arrest laws. Uh, there are sort of two primary questions explored in the article. Uh, first, how should the historically rooted, racially subordinating dimensions of policing inform the way we conceive of resisting arrest laws, um, sort of our normative conceptions? And, and second, given these subordinating dimensions, how should the state and society respond to Black resistance to arrest and policing? And so, I explore these questions uh, in part by detailing how these resisting arrest laws harden white social dominance and deepen Black racial subordination. And I also discuss the need for transformative, non-punitive interventions that eradicate the harms animating Black resistance. Put uh, differently, instead of inflicting harm on Black people who resist racially subordinating policing, harm in the form of criminal punishment. Uh, instead, uh, the state and society uh, should eradicate the harms um, animating the resistance, right? Which includes um, alienation, which includes uh, deprivation, uh, which includes sort of this predatory policing itself. So I can, I can um, go on sort of for hours about this, but, uh, I'll just leave it there for now. What is the nature of the resistance you talk about now? So I'm talking about 
individual acts of resistance against the capture of arrest. Uh, and so examples that we've all seen uh, would be, you know, most notably George Floyd, right? Um, and also more recently Tyree Nichols, but, but also we can think of Kareem Gaines as well. And so instances in which uh, law enforcement try to capture a Black person's body and the Black person resists that capture. And so, and, and our focus is, our focus on this point because, you know, in, in the last few years, there's been a broad consensus that um, policing in the United States today is in fact racially subordinating, right? Um, and, and that was probably the high watermark was 2020 when people really began to grasp the racially subordinating nature of policing. And it's racially subordinating in part because of the racial disparities in arrests, the racial disparities in sentencing, racial disparities uh, in parole release decisions and, and the like. Uh, but it's also racially subordinating um, because of sort of the historically rooted um, sort of adverse conditions in which, uh, you know, for example, Black communities are situated um, and, 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 you know, Richard Rothstein, who's, who's on this Zoom, has, has done us all of sort of great service in detailing um, how sort of these subordinating conditions in which Black communities live were, were largely legislated um, and, and cahoots with the, the private sector. Uh, and so policing has been a central factor in maintaining the racial order uh, of um, you know, the United States, which is in part white over black. Uh, and so in resisting sort of the capture of arrest at the hands of you know, agents of violence for you know, at the behest of a violent criminal punishment system, um, black people are not only resisting the individual arresting officer, uh, but are effectively also resisting a system of racial subordination and, and this sort of recalls um, enslaved Black captives' resistance to another system of racial subordination, uh, an originary form of violence in this country, which is, you know, the the you know chattel slavery, right, uh, and and the policing that undergirded chattel slavery. And so I detail in my article accounts of Black people. <laughs> resisting um, whites enforcing sort of the, the, the racial order, uh, the, the fraught racial relations of power of chattel slavery, and how some of these enslaved Black capitals were actually prosecuted for this resistance. Um, you know, one, one of the, the people was a, a Black woman who was, who was actually um, executed because of her resistance against her her white slaver, um, who you know was repeatedly sexually assaulting her, uh, and this brings to mind sort of the intersectional dimensions of this resistance. Uh, the two most common complaints levied against law enforcement today are excessive force and sort of sexual assault and harassment, uh, and, and so there are so many echoes that I want to um, bring to the fore. Or I. I hope that I have brought to the fore mm -hmm. 
um, in this article. And, and, and the point of entry is, is this seemingly everyday instance of um, an arrest, right? Uh, in the resistance there too. But I mean, is, is it sort of a catch 22 in the sense that if I'm being arrested and I know the officer is making an unlawful or illegal arrest, I mean, what do I do? Well, I, I think that it depends on what your priorities are. Um, and it depends on um, sort of your tolerance for racial subordination as well. Um, and and what, and frankly, what you have to lose. Uh, and so <clears throat> I, I think that, you know, there is, there is something perverse in the assumption or the expectation that everybody without exception um, would readily surrender to an officer unlawfully arresting them, unlawfully trying to capture their bodies, especially when, you know, as mammals, we have these, um, you know, primordial um, sort of stress responses to capture itself, right? So some of that resistance might even be involuntary, although some of the resistance might be voluntary. So, you know, part of one assumption undergirding your question is that you even have a choice on how you respond to somebody with a gun trying to capture your body, um, you know, especially for, for no, um, you know, I, unlawfully, um, but also, uh, I think that it's important to again keep in mind the racial relations of power at play. So, do we ask the same question when we think about people who resisted uh, slave patrollers in the antebellum South? Do we think, oh, you know, this person who was killed or tried and prosecuted? Uh, in the antebellum South for resisting a slave patrol should have just surrendered uh, their body um, because it would have saved them either the violence that was inflicted upon them uh, in the, you know, there on the spot or in the form of criminal punishment. We don't because there is a broader system of racial subordination at play that we rightly focus on uh, and that was effectively being resisted. Um, by the enslaved Black captives and that we see sort of playing out uh, today on the streets. We just don't recognize it as such. Uh, jo Joanna Schwartz in her <clears throat> uh, book, Shielded, uh, talks an awful lot about the, the fact that, that it's the, the police themselves are, uh, are very difficult to, uh, if they do something wrong, it's very difficult to overcome that. And, and she goes beyond race in that, uh, although a number of the people that she cites are, are black. Um, any comment on the fact that, I mean, she basically says, and I'm only halfway through the book, but she sort of says, it's really, really tough to uh, fight back against a policeman in, in court or any other way. Uh, yes, yes. And, and I actually saw her talk at NYU this past semester um, and and there's, you know, her she does us a great service in, in giving us this book. Um, one 
sort of area that she hopefully will explore more in the future is how the, it's even harder to bring sort of race, race-based claims against officer uses of force, right? And, and so what she focuses on is um, the, the difficulty in pursuing excessive force claims. Uh, and, and she's right. And, and I think that this difficulty in overcoming qualified immunity uh, and finding um, counsel who will represent you, uh, especially if your injuries aren't, um, you know, uh, fatal. Uh, but yeah, finding counsel to represent you and o- overcoming qualified immunity and overcoming the hurdles to getting the municipality found by this, this lack of means of redress might also contribute to the resistance um, that we see at the point of arrest mm-hmm. as well. Um, people feeling as if they have um, no other sort of means of securing sort of the dignity that they are deserving of and a- avoiding sort of the harm inflicted by the state and in and deploying law enforcement officers to communities to capture people's bodies for the additional harm of criminal punishment. Uh, David Allen. You situate this troubling case very powerfully in the context of slavery when slavery was acknowledged and accepted. Um, That's very helpful, of course, in thinking about what otherwise seems like a puzzling situation. Uh, When we think about it, we can see at least three points on the causal chain when there might be an intervention. There's the arrest itself, uh, and responding, or the attempted arrest, and responding to that, um, that can, of course, get very dicey. at the same time, it has to be one point at which there could be a response. Indeed, resist. Uh, another point is after the fact, as you've just been addressing, uh, a redress from this uh, unlawful arrest. And also, when we push back in the causal chain and look at what has led to, as you are suggesting this uh, implicit enslaving now, or at least subordination, as you describe it, what steps might be taken to, I suppose, bring this to the surface? And, uh, and of course, writ large, that's a great deal of what's going on right now. But uh, I invite uh, your thoughts. Uh, Alden's already asked the question, so what do we do about it? Uh, I invite your your thoughts uh, on any one of those three points of intervention or or otherwise as you see fit. Sounds great. I I I think to even point out a point of intervention that precedes the arrest itself, it's it's the actual criminalization. Um, or over-criminalization, but no, I'll, I'll just say criminalization of, um, you know, innocuous acts like 
passing off a counterfeit $20 bill, which led to George Floyd's uh, attempt, the attempted arrest of George Floyd and his death, or selling uh, a single cigarette uh, you know, on the street, or selling loose cigarettes on the street, which led to Eric Garner's attempted, you know, the attempted arrest of Eric Garner and Eric Garner's death. Uh, and so point in bringing those up is that uh, one intervention that could be made um, is, is to sort of reduce um, civilians' contact with law enforcement, uh, to severely curtail uh, the use of punitive arrest as a punitive safety-making strategy. It doesn't make sense to license armed people to capture uh, and hold captive people for being suspected of passing off a $20 bill or selling a loose cigarette, given the stakes uh, at play, um, which is sort of the actual lives uh, of um, people targeted by law enforcement. But also more broadly, um, we have to re-envision um, what safety-making strategies we use uh, to respond to harm uh, and ensure safety in, in our society. And, and so that means sort of getting uh, rid of punitive arrest, right? That's that's arrest, that's capture for the purpose of inflicting harm on people's bodies versus, um, you know, violence interruption, right? Which, which is, is only geared towards um, sort of reducing harm and preventing harm, right? And then afterwards we can engage in sort of transformative means of ensuring justice, which is trying to figure out what are the causes of sort of the either the deviant behavior or the violent behavior at play? How do we sort of interrupt that causal structure, right? So how do we prevent that from happening uh, again? Um, and and how do we respond to the harm of of uh, people affected? Uh, because you know a lot of times. The, the people who are arrested for violent crime, prosecuted for violent crime, are victims themselves of previous acts of violence, right? And they have their own unmitigated trauma. Um, they have, you know, their, their, their own um, sort of uh, trials and tribulations that have been unaddressed uh, that may play a causal role in whatever violence they may commit, right? And so if we interrupt that causal structure uh, and use resources on the front end to do that, then we can um, ensure safety uh, for us all in a, in a better way. But what we see today is that, you know, the state does not, the state's claims on the front end not to have enough resources um, to to address the needs of marginalized communities, um, and and then uh, 
if a person commits an act of desperation, right, it's like a like a, a a bank robbery or something like that, um, that is rooted in you know the false scarcities created by our economic order, then all of a sudden the state has unlimited resources to prosecute and incarcerate uh, the the you know the the people suspected of committing these. <clears throat> criminalized acts. And so in short, uh, it is sort of reducing, you know, my my proposed intervention is reducing contact uh, with police, reducing severely curtailing punitive arrest, uh, and in addition, um, shifting resources from inflicting harm on people in the form of criminal punishment and punitive policing uh, to disrupting the causal structure of the harm, which in part is segregation, which is our, our you know, race, uh, racial dis disparities in wealth, which in part is unmitigated uh, trauma um, and so on and so forth. And hopefully we can reach this abolitionist horizon in which we don't depend at all on um, punitive policing or criminal punishment to ensure safety. Uh, I, I focus on physical resistance because that is what is actually criminalized. Uh, so criminal laws uh, usually have this sort of physical nexus. Um, there's an actus reus requirement to crime that whatever is criminalized is, should be physically overt. But uh, that being said, when it comes to sort of these verbal um verbal interactions, they could also give rise to disorderly conduct arrest, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so they're very much uh, a salient um, factor in sort of the criminalization of defiance generally of racially, so, uh, of racially subordinating policing. Um, <clears throat> in addition, I think oftentimes you see officers escalating encounters um, by, uh, you know, the 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 tone they use when they interact with people being arrested, um, you know, the the threats being leveled levied at people as well, uh, and, and so that's where you know the verbal uh, element is our dimension is uh, at play as well. Uh, and some people stop there and just say, you know, we just need police officers to be kinder and more compassionate. And, and that's the solution. Uh, and, and advocates of procedural justice advocate for that. Uh, but at the end of the day, and, and this, this is why I focus on this physical resistance, you know, you can be the kindest, most compassionate officer in the world. At the end of the day, if you capture somebody's body, you're still capturing somebody's body um, and, and holding them captive for the state to inflict harm in the form of criminal punishment. Um, and, and so it's always possible that, you know, that act itself would breed uh, resistance. Hamp. Yeah, uh, I was interested that you brought in the abolitionist uh, philosophy, Omavi. And uh, what I was I was wondering about is how you would evaluate uh, what you're seeing with the abolitionism in uh, 
uh, on, and I guess it's in the West Coast in California, and I'm not sure where else. And, you know, I try to watch five minutes of Fox News a day as a spiritual discipline. <laughs> and they're always showing, showing, showing people robbing stuff and, and security guards standing by and stuff. But how would you evaluate the, the uh, development of abolitionism so far in the, in the last 10 years or so? I would say, and that's a great question, um, and, and I, I'm not going to put myself out there to be the, the foremost authority in abolition. I, I would encourage people to, um, you know, go to Interrupting Criminalization, uh, read Derek Cornell's work, Miriam Kaba, Andrea Ritchie, um, Abolition Feminism Now, uh, just released by Angela Davis and others, to, to learn more um about it but i'll take a stab at your question um i think that abolitionist movement today is very much ascendant in that uh we we can talk about it uh on this this zoom and in this podcast uh it's being taught in universities um so the subjective factors are are very much ascendant uh at the same time uh, it's very much underfunded, right? Uh, and so it's very hard to uh, assess the efficacy of abolitionist experience um, when oftentimes they're not able to, to function outside of, you know, the neighborhood level because they are so vastly underfunded, especially compared to sort of law enforcement agencies, prosecutors' offices, um, jails, prisons, all the means of inflicting harm um, on civilians in the form of criminal punishment. Uh, there are several abolitionist experiments um, occurring now, uh, and, and, and some are formal sort of nonprofit-driven uh, <clears throat> experiments that people can learn about by going to Interrupting Criminalization, their Million Experiments um, website, which details um, the, the, the workings of a lot of these abolitionist organizers. Uh, but, but what we don't acknowledge often is that even outside of the formal organizational context, we have abolitionist experiments occurring when, when, you know, somebody hears their, their neighbors um, getting into a violent argument and go over there and sit down with both of their neighbors and de-escalate the encounter and follow up. That's, that's an abolitionist experiment. Um, when, when kids are, um, you know, get into conflict at school uh, and the school engages, engages in a restorative justice process instead of um, you know, having police officers arrest the students. That's an abolitionist experiment. Uh, and so all over the country, uh, there are processes um, unfolding um, designed to repair broken relationships um, and, and to sort of restore, restore these broken relationships, repair um, people who have been harmed. Uh, and the, the missing... Uh, element oftentimes it's just the resources needed to to bring these experiments to scale and to truly judge um, 
the efficacy of the, these experiments. And so, um, so, so the final thing I'll say is sometimes um, you may have an instance of uh, <clears throat> someone um, causing harm um, despite there being a restorative justice process present. Uh, and in the absence of, you know, true investment in these experiments, uh, and you know, it's it's hard to really uh, judge their their efficacy, and so that's what we need to do. Uh, and, and it's it's unfair to uh, hold these experiments to a higher standard um, than well, I I won't say that, but it's unfair to expect perfection from these experiments, right? When we, um, you know, not us on the Zoom, of course, but uh, when the vast Wasa society um, accepts such mediocrity in the, the criminal punishment. Well, um, I guess I can't start from a, uh, the supposition that any arrest of a black person in the United States is always uh, akin to recovering a slave in this, day and age, I think we just have to look at the, it's a case by case thing of resisting arrest. It could be a felony, it could be a misdemeanor, depends on what the person was doing. It depends on whether the person can then challenge the arrest uh, in court. The, uh, it's not a, in, in Britain, I think it's not against the law to resist arrest, but they also have, um, there are criminal ways that you could resist arrest and there are, Ways that are deemed as deemed as not criminal necessarily, but that's what you have a court for. That's what you have the laws for. But there are a lot of, um, you know, there are a lot of crimes that are committed by poor people, and because of the history of the racism, we know that black people are more likely to be poor than some other groups. So, I think unless we address the um, issues that make so many people poor and uh, deprived of the rights, we're not really going to get to any, any uh, new kind of justice system in the United States. But I don't think that, I don't know if the approach of uh, the notion that it's like enforcing slavery is, um, is it gonna be helpful or not? I don't know, I, I don't necessarily see it as automatically a racist uh, interaction every time a, policeman who's not black arrest a black person or attempts to. That's what we have court cases for. Yeah, I, yeah, I take that. So I think that <clears throat> I'm not saying that it's exactly the same um, with arresting a black person today on suspicion of committing a crime as it is to arrest, you know, runaway enslaved black captive in the bellum era. That's, that's not the point. Uh, the point is that we have to factor in sort of the racially subordinating context in which we're situated and assessing the, the, the way we respond to uh, the resistance, right? Uh, and, and so <clears throat> one thing that we have to keep sight of uh, as well is that, you know, there were enslaved black captives who stole property in the antebellum era. There were enslaved black captives who 
inflicted violence on other enslaved Black captives in the antebellum era. Uh, and they were punished by, um, you know, either being incarcerated, but often summarily punished by being, you know, whipped uh, if, if not executed. Um, and, and so when we think back to those grisly pictures of people being whipped yeah. and executed uh, in the antebellum era, we don't think, what did they do to deserve that, right? We think about how horrible it is that that actually occurred. What I'm saying is that since there is a broad consensus, not everybody agrees, but there's a broad consensus that the criminal punishment system is racially subordinating, when we think about um, the response to criminalized behavior being uh, that somebody is actually going to get captured, right? For passing like a counterfeit $20 bill or um, for engaging in impulsive action, they're gonna get captured. They're gonna have the red scarlet letter of a criminal um, criminal conviction on their record that makes it less likely they're going to get housing. That's going to make it less likely uh, that they're going to get a job. They're going to be incarcerated and separated for their loved ones, potentially for years in institutions in which they can be subjected to involuntary labor and excessive rates or exceptionally high rates of violence and then released back to uh, the same fraught conditions um, that were conducive to them um, engaging in the criminalized behavior anyway, right? When we think about all that, I, I'm saying that, you know, we have to take account or account for those harmful dimensions of criminal punishment in, in our normative conceptions uh, and, and, and remember our, our are not lose sight of when somebody is resisting law enforcement, which is the, the criminalized behavior that I focus on in my piece, they're effectively resisting all of sort of the harmful dimensions, the racially subordinate dimensions of criminal punishment um, that I, I just laid out. David Lillipel. Well, it's such a rich subject and thank you, Amavi, for uh... Uh, introducing us to this aspect of uh, what we hear about a lot of criminal, uh, of um, critical race uh, theory and all of that. Um, it occurs to me that um, one part of this is that uh, it it's so deeply in the culture. I'm just thinking of what just happened in New York of uh, a, uh, it wasn't a policeman, it was a former Marine who uh, uh, killed a man on the subway for acting up, for uh, being disorderly, let's say. Uh, and uh, I happened to, just a week before that, I was riding the subway and somebody was being disorderly. And uh, there were two <laughs> cops on the car, uh, on the subway car. And uh, one of them was a high officer who wears a white shirt and a big gold badge. And he was talking down the uh, ordinary cop who was trying to uh, uh, make a confrontation. And he was talking down the fellow who was uh, who was just carrying on. Uh, it's hard to say what he was doing. 
but he was being disorderly, let's say. And uh, uh, the, uh, the higher officer uh, handled it actually very well. He uh, calmed everybody down and uh, uh, they got off the uh, uh, at different stops and went on their way. Uh, so it wasn't a murderous uh, event. Uh, but something like disorderly conduct is such a vague thing. And I have to say, in, uh, and I'm sure it happens in, uh, in the U.S. too, in India, there's something called uh, encounters uh, in which uh, the police uh, kill somebody uh, and then later on say he, uh, that person was uh, resisting or his uh, arrest. The fact that, you know, in that instance of somebody being, um, you know, quote unquote disorderly on the train, the fact that it's noteworthy that those police officers did not capture that neurodivergent person's body, right? The fact that that is noteworthy, um, it, it it illuminates sort of the, the violent dimensions of police and that permeate um, our, our, our society, that it's it seems exceptional when they, they don't engage in that act of violent capture. Um, I've uh, uh, read a number of times that part of the problem in American policing comes from the fact that uh, the police, the, the institution of policing came out of slave patrol and that, that that's inherent in, in, uh, in American policing. Um, almost all societies now have some kind of police force. Um, is is there any, and this may be outside of your uh, area of research, but is there any evidence that uh, a police force which developed some other way, I don't know, in, in the UK, in, in Germany, uh, uh, India, whatever, uh, is is less uh, less inclined to use force? So you're you're correct. I, I I'm not a sort of comparative law scholar, um, and, and so I don't have a ready answer to that question. Um, what I will say is that you know there are all sorts of sort of universally uh, enforced um, societal ills. Uh, around the globe, right? So patriarchy is nearly universal, right? Homophobia is nearly universal. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we throw our hands up and just accept patriarchy, that we throw our hands up and accept homophobia, even though the arguments in favor of patriarchy and homophobia is that they, you know, they are essential to the order of um, society in, in, in many instances. Um, and, and so what I am and, and a lot of abolitionists are arguing for is not anarchy, uh, is not to let behavior fester and, and go unabated. Uh, what we're arguing for is bodily interruption uh, that reduce harm rather than exacerbate harm, right? Uh, and so while all societies have some form of violence interruption, not all societies have um, a per capita incarceration rate uh, with ours. Not all society have a police state as extensive 
uh, as as ours. Uh, and, and so that's that's what you know. I, I'm, I'm I and others are drawing attention to. I remember when I was back in high school, my mother was studying psychology, and she took a course in projective testing. And one of the things she learned there was that police have a lot of personality traits in common with criminals. And I'm just wondering, first, does that ever change? And, you know, we don't seem to be that aware of it as just a matter of course. And I suspect that there's, you have to take that into account when you're trying to regulate things, the unfortunate things that happen with these arrests. Do you... And, and by it, we're not aware of it. What is the it that you're speaking of? Well, you know, what I'm speaking of is it's just, it seems like a constant that 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 if police have a chance to do something that involves violence or something, you know, that, that we would call criminal tendencies, you know, they might use it more than most of us would. You know, right. and and I was just wondering how much is is that dealt with in training or in the law or anything? Just the awareness of the, you know, what my mother heard of as the criminal tendencies of police officers. Right. So I would say a, a part of it's you could interpret that in two different ways. You can interpret it as you know violent people become police officers, or you can also interpret it as, you know, something about um, being a police officer may make one more violent, right? Uh, and, and so in the psychological literature uh, and sociological liter literature, there's, there's often talk about in-group, out-group dynamics, right? Uh, and <clears throat> By having sort of this law enforcement agency, you're you're that is external to the community, right? In many in many places, like in New York, you know, a lot of the police who uh, patrol the streets of where I am in Brooklyn, they live further out in Long Island or Staten Island, right? And so you form this in group within uh, these communities, and then this in group treats the people they patrol as an out group. And that is sort of an adversarial um, relationship that is largely constructed, right, um, by sort of the the um, the structure of uh, policing um, or, or just you know the nature of law enforcement itself, uh, and, and what they're asked to do, right? They're asked to capture people's bodies, right, and, which. Researchers with the National Institutes of Health, you know, have, have cast an arrest as a form of community violence, right? And so it should be no surprise that law enforcement officers might share traits with people who commit violence because a part of their job is to commit violent acts uh, against people for the mere suspicion for not. And that's another thing we have to consider. You know, a lot of people are acquitted of crimes. A lot of people um, are not prosecuted for crimes they are arrested for, right? So a lot of these crimes are not meritorious, but, you know, the arrest itself 
is sanctioned, right? Uh, and so the violence is sanctioned in spite of the lack of uh, a sustained criminal conviction. Uh, and so th that's those, in, in short, those are sort of my two responses, that part of it is just the nature of policing. Um, and, and it might also be some yeah. sort of um, inherent uh, traits of people drawn to policing. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, in, in response to the, somewhat to the last uh, discussion, but also uh, to sort of prove uh, Omavi's general thesis by an opposite example, I live up in a in northern tip of New Hampshire, which is a rural community and a pure white community, just whites up there pretty much, not entirely, but pretty much. And uh, one thing you don't see, well, if, if if guys get out of hand, I talked to one cop and just in conversation recently, he talked to me about a good old boy coming after him with a hatchet. And he had to respond with violence to that, obviously, but... And so those situations occur all the time. But what you never hear about in this culture, in this society, is a routine traffic stop escalating into something else. It just, I've never observed that or, or heard of that. that. That It just isn't part of the uh, uh, situation. So that would seem to me uh, that there's a underlying sort of uh, framework of thought that 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 makes things happen in a certain way in a in a culture like up here, whereas in the general society, with its component of a an original kidnapping of people and a slave structure, you have an entirely different bunch of frameworks of thought that result in a and a different kind of a dynamic in the general application of the law. So I just wanted to suggest that the opposite example kind of, to my mind, proves Omavi's general thesis. Hmm. Uh, and I'll say amen to that, you know. <laughs> wow. Good, good. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. It was really quite good. Thank you. Interesting. Uh, I can't thank you enough for having me uh, anytime. And what are you working on now? What is your next uh, project, if I might ask? So my current writing project uh, is um, entitled Punishing Involuntary Resistance. Uh, and so it discusses how uh, the even involuntary flight or flight responses to arrest are the subject of criminal punishment. Uh, and, and ways to reduce the harm um, to involuntary resistors by forcing prosecutors to prove voluntariness beyond a reasonable doubt in these prosecutions. And so that in my organizing project is supporting the Little Rock Freedom Fund, a Bell Fund uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, okay, great. All right, thank you, everybody. That was Amavi. Shakur, he has published a Boston University law review article titled The Criminalization of Black Resistance. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. 
I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. 